Welcome to the CMS Real Deal podcast, where we take a step back from the legal nitty-gritty and provide insight into issues affecting the property industry. I am Danny Drummond-Brassington, and today I'm joined by Oliver Radley-Gardner and Wayne Clark, barristers at Falcon Chambers, who specialise in the telecoms code. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. So we're just over one year into the new telecoms code, which was part of the Digital Economy Act. It was brought in to aid the rollout of digital communications. Um, primarily, the UK lags behind most of its European neighbours in the full use of fibre optic cables. So Portugal's got 90% penetration into homes, where we've got 4% in homes and businesses in the UK. The new code was said to mark a step change in the relationship between site providers and operators. But when it was launched, it was met with much scepticism from landlords who, who accused the government of sidelining their interests. From an informal survey we carried out, the majority of people thought it would not facilitate the rollout of new technology in the short term, but may do in the long term. The only consistent message was that everyone thought it would lead to more litigation. So, Oliver, Wayne, one year on, is that true? Um, we, uh, we certainly, I think, have seen... Uh, more cases in the one-year period than we may have seen for the entire lifetime of the old code, which may, may be what could be expected for a new piece of legislation. And a lot of these cases that we are now seeing are settling fundamental issues of interest to both site providers and, and operators. Yeah, uh, the mantra that was given at the RICS Telecoms Forum in November last year was engage, not enrage. And uh, although there has been an attempt to engage, uh, I think that uh, because of the polarisation of views with respect to the consideration that is to be paid, um, my understanding is, is that there have been a very limited number of deals that have been effected between operators and landowners. Uh, that is likely to continue until there's a resolution of the legal principles with the various cases that are at the upper tribunal. So roughly how many cases are you aware of, um, obviously not giving away any confidential information, but that are in the, in the upper tribunal or are expected to come on to be heard this? I understand from the Deputy President that there are at least 40 wow. extant cases uh, in the upper tribunal. Uh, if you look at the telecommunications reference number, uh, on the upper tribunal references, you'll see it's up to about 70 yeah. towards 80. I think, uh, I think that's right. The, the upper right-hand corner of your pleading will have the reference number, and I think, I think we are in the, at least in the high 70s. Um, that's obviously created some interesting case management issues for the upper tribunal, which is, um, uh, at the moment... Uh, dealing with it all through the Deputy President exclusively, which means that there's one judge allocated to all of these cases. So one issue for, for the litigation uh, people listening is, of course, how, how do we manage the cases and preliminary issues, test cases, lead cases, staying similar cases behind uh, those sorts of cases are all tools which, which certainly I've seen in case management tools being used by the Upper Tribunal to deal with that volume. That's phenomenal. So 70 cases when, I think, uh, Oliver, you mentioned there's hardly any case law on the old code. But what I found quite interesting is that I was looking back at the cases last year in the code and there were about three on the old code, mm. 
which again I find very interesting. I think it goes back to your point about this polarisation. I get the sense that nobody really wanted to rock the boat with the, the 84 legislation. It wasn't necessarily fit for purpose and nobody really wanted an adverse decision. But we're in this new era and it's almost like the gloves are off, all bets off, let's find our feet in this new world and let's get it sorted and, and move on. Uh, I think that's right. I think that operators and certain operators wish to ensure that issues of principle are, are determined. Mm. And uh, to a certain extent, one can see that that has a public benefit. And do you think that we are in a more sort of litigious period as opposed to trying to resolve it to unlock a deal or a development opportunity? Because I think, you know, historically we'd look at it and go, yes, everybody's sort of posturing, but ultimately you'll find a way through, there'll be a deal done. It sort of feels like there's a little bit more of digging heels in because everybody wants to find their feet. Well, there are, I mean, there are issues that are of importance to both parties that, that do need resolving. I mean, Wayne and I were on opposite sides in a case uh, about access rights. Mm. Um, and that, that, for example, is an issue of, of practical importance um, that, 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 that just needs to be knocked on the head and, and resolved. And I think part of the reason we're seeing um, more reported cases, obviously, also is that the upper tribunal, unlike the county court, which was responsible for a lot for, for, for the old code, uh, publishes its decisions. Yeah. Um, so it's it's always been slightly difficult to gauge exactly how many old old code cases progressed under the uh, in the county courts. I mean, I was in a few that uh, just simply didn't ever get reported because of where they were. Um, but we have seen, for example, a number of decisions recently in Scotland, yep. which you'll have been aware of. Um, so, so yes, it does seem that, that we are uh, just after it's almost been killed off completely, <laughs> finally getting yeah. some of this. I think the legislative landscape has completely changed, hasn't it? Because the old code was, what, 29 paragraphs. Yeah. Uh, we're now in a world of 108 paragraphs with several schedules, all of which have numerous paragraphs themselves. And there's obviously, within the wording, an element of uncertainty. And as Oliver says, with respect to the right of access, that was unclear. Yeah. That did need to be resolved. Uh, and the case also resolved a number of other uncertainties. Yeah. For instance, the issue as to whether or not interim rights yeah. are parasitic on the yeah. Power 20 rights. I wanted to talk about interim rights because I, um, I think that's a really interesting point about the interim rights um, not, as you say, not needing to be parasitic on a, f a full yeah. code right. Um, do you think that that's sort of, we're going to see quasi-contracting out because people could rely on the interim rights, avoid the termination provisions and just have to deal with removal, which if you are, so if I put my landlord hat on and often um, I am advising landlords looking at this going, actually I want to carry out a redevelopment in three years' time, you know, we've got an operator there, their, their protections come to an end, how do we make sure that we're not going to be spending the next two years leading up to that sort of redevelopment mm. d date? Then an interim right yeah, would seem to suit that purpose. I, mean, I think I think I think there is a lot to be said for the interim right being used for that purpose. A common example that, that you'll have come across, Danny and, and Wayne will as well, is is end of near nearing the end of the lease term. The tenant says, "Could I please have a way leave?" Uh, or could you please grant a way leave to this particular person so they can access, also I can access broadband during the last three years of my term of my commercial lease in my office. Uh, and, and to do that under a power 26 is phenomenally useful because everyone then knows 
that when it dies, it dies. And there are many other applications, actually, where the Power 26 ride is phenomenally useful. For example, um, if you need to move somebody off-site temporarily while you're recladding your roof, um, if you need to boost uh, uh, the, the, the quality and, and, and extent of coverage because the Notting Hill Carnival is taking place and you know that everyone's going to be Instagramming photographs at a very high volume for a very limited period of time or you know, Glastonbury or whatever it may be. Um, those are phenomenally uh, common uh, things nowadays. We all uh, have an online life that requires us to access and tell everyone what we're doing. Um, and, and Power 26 operating in that way facilitates that. So uh, in a way it's no harm done and it's phenomenally useful is, is the argument. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although obviously in the case in question I was arguing the contrary and that it was parasitic. <laughs> yes. uh, in relation to the, the question, yeah, I, I agree with Oliver. I, I think that there is a usefulness uh, in Para 26 as this quasi-contracting out. Uh, and as Oliver said, particularly for the short-term arrangements, yeah. such as the sort of festivals. I think that that is, though, coming back to the issue of litigation, that is still another issue to, to be resolved, notwithstanding the fact we already have a determination on paragraph yeah. 26, is the extent to which the length of period yes. of, of the paragraph 26 term uh, can, be, can be determined by the, tr by the tribunal, its length, that is to yeah. say, because uh, in the case that Oliver and I were arguing, one of the arguments, the rhetorical arguments I put forward is, well, how long? Because there is no limitation under paragraph no. 26, and on the face of it, it could be five years, ten years. Yeah. Uh, there is the more recent decision of the Deputy President in the Islington Borough Council yes. case where he indicates it should be a short period yep. under paragraph 26 and there was a reference there to three to four months but that may have been fact specific yeah. but I think that that is still another issue to be resolved. Yes. There is ultimately a, a, a discretion that the tribunal has. I mean there are two ways in which you can access this right. One is that um, one, one, one um, litigates about it in, in contended, contested proceedings and the tribunal makes its determination. But the other one is that the tribunal is entitled to grant its imprimatur to an agreement uh, presented to it by the parties mm. so that you can do it consensually or, or have yeah. it imposed non-consensually. Um, but, but the tribunal, I think, in both of those contexts would still retain some sort of discretion as to whether it's minded to, to yes. make that right. Uh, and in fact, in an unreported case that Oliver and I had, uh, relating to a hotel uh, near Paddington train station. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what happened. The yeah. parties did reach a compromise with yes. respect to interim rights, uh, from what I yeah. recall. Because it did strike, we were talking about it, it did strike me, it, it's almost going back to the old 1954 Act contracting out. You agree everything, put your papers in and hope it's all rubber stamped and, and move on. And then probably the argument comes at the end of the, the term that you've agreed when an operator says, well, actually, this was never an interim one. I have got termination. I have got a code agreement. And it's sort of looking back. Yes, I mean, the, the, the one drawback, if one can call it that, with respect to a quasi-contracting out use of paragraph 26 is that, uh, albeit a paragraph 26 agreement uh, is not caught by part five, and mm. therefore you don't have to terminate in accordance with part five, there's nothing within the code stopping an operator at the end of the paragraph 26 term that's been imposed from saying, actually, I want a long-term yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. And serving a paragraph 20 notice seeking seeking full code rights. But, um, but the, I suppose the counter-argument to that is that's a right that the operators have 
anyway. by, by yes, dint of the code. Exactly. Um, and again, one then gets into the question of the discretion that's to be exercised yeah. in that situation. So let's, let's move on to talk about rents and valuations, because that's the other controversial topic. And you, this new code is about making sure that you know, the rollout of new technology happens. And actually, what you're hearing, you, farmers who have previously allowed a mass in and perhaps got five, six, seven grand a year for it, in a corner of their field and dealt with some access issues, now we're going to be offered £50, £100. And it's actually the rural areas of this country that really do need the, the technology to be able to make sure that we're reaching all communities. It's not necessarily just about cities. So you, the valuation, as far as I'm concerned, is still this big question about how we, how we get there. What are your thoughts? Do you think we're going to get any clarity in 20 this year? I think certainly we are obtaining clarity because there are several cases uh, where the issue of consideration is going to be determined. I have one coming up in March, there may be others yeah. earlier than that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether Oliver, you have any on um, consideration. The, the, um, there are a number of cases yeah. currently sticking in the upper tribunal which um, I think the tribunal is hoping to resolve yeah. in mm. quarter one or quarter two the, this The formula year. is very complex. Yes. Uh, and I'm not sure in my own mind that I'm, I'm clear myself. I, every time I look at it, I, I see different things yeah. in it. Um, and of course, there is a multiplicity of, of, of sites. I mean, you've yeah. got your, you know, when one thinks of a telecoms site, electronic communications site, you, you naturally think of a greenfield site or a rooftop site, yeah. but, you know, there are many other po points between. Um, but, you know, the... the, the if, if one looks at the underlying policy documentation, as, as you point out, Danny, I mean, one of the big one of the big problems that was highlighted by, by for example, by David Cameron was the the shortage of coverage in uh, rural parts of the United Kingdom, and that requires infrastructure investment and rollout. and And I suppose, I mean, I'm no I'm no economist in this area, but I suppose just common sense dictates that. Um, if you've got thousands of customers in a central London site, that's one particular economy of scale. But if you've only got a handful of rural users, yeah. um, that, that, that makes the economics of that site very different, uh, I would imagine. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's a very complex factual issue, as well as Wayne pointing out. It's a, pretty, mm. it's a very complex issue. I think it comes back to the point you were mentioning, Danny, about um, are we in a world where we're just carry on litigating issues. Mm. I think once the issue of consideration has been resolved, that will uh, open yeah. the way for quite a number of deals to be effected, one would hope. Yes, I think that's the case, because at the moment there's just this big question mark, and every time you turn around, you're talking to clients and all their valuers, everybody goes, just don't know yet. So once we've got some clarity, you would hope that people start to, to find their feet and can, can see, a, see a way forward yes. and a deal, deal yes. to be done. Because litigation is costly, and I certainly think that's something that, that I mean, insofar as it's it, one can pick that up, I think that's something the upper tribunal has in mind, which is that it generally is, I think, approaching all of these cases from the point of view of establishing uh, broad principles, if possible, mm. um, just in order to nail points, and that's just not principle, not merely principles of substance, but also, for example, we're seeing the tribunal developing its procedure as to how it's mm. going to be dealing with these cases. Um, for example, that Wayne and I, when we were litigating um, our, our interim rights case, uh, it was a case that involved oral evidence, um, cross-examination mm. of, of factual and expert witnesses, 
and it was I think it was two days, wasn't it, or something it was like that? Two days. Um, and um, uh, uh, and during the course of that, the, the upper tribunal, the deputy president, remarked that really these cases would in future be done on paper. So it's also I think a a, a question of the upper tribunal getting a feel yeah. for what these cases are actually about, because you don't really get a full impression by simply reading the code. You, you have to get yes, a sort of feel right. of what the issues yeah. are. Well, that's, that's quite comforting to hear, isn't it? Because that then is consistent with getting this rollout, things getting quicker and, and not costing as much. Because, you know, as you say, two days in court with oral evidence, barristers, lawyers, it's an expensive mm. um, argument to have mm. over the point. Yes, we need the clarity. But if we've got a tribunal that is then focusing on this, being more efficient, then that can only help. Mm, I think it can. I, I think also, uh, as you may be aware, the determination by the upper tribunal is occurring quite speedily, yeah. mm. uh, and that's a product of the deputy president taking on board the statutory obligation to ensure that, with respect to the imposition of new apparatus, yes. determinations have to be effected or made within a period of six months and. Uh, although it's not a practice direction, the upper tribunal has made it clear that determinations will be made within a period of five months, providing one month for mm. judgment to be mm. delivered. Yeah. Mm. So these cases are uh, coming on uh, yeah. uh, very sort of, So if, yeah, you, very uh, fast. if you're going to issue, you're going to be prepared to work hard. It's not like the county court where it drift yes. it could be a year, eight clients, 18 months. I mean, things like we're gradually seeing standardised directions appearing, mm. for example, which obviously understandably takes a bit of time to bed down to understand what the issues yeah. are and, uh, and so on and so forth. But we're, we're seeing CMCs coming up probably within three to four weeks, maybe five weeks of issue of, of yes. applications, something around that. Yeah. Um, and, and then case management uh, happening pretty swiftly. And the other advantage of being in the upper tribunal is, of course, the upper tribunal is extremely familiar with um, CPO matters and those sorts of issues uh, and is a specialist so it doesn't get lost in a yeah. county court general list. You're not trying to um, educate a judge that's got a history in family law about the whys and wherefores of yes, valuing and I think the domestic. Deputy President himself has, has developed his own sort of education with respect no, well, to, to the telecoms but as Oliver mentions you know, it is important also to be familiar oneself with the procedure because uh, it was a, a, a jurisdiction that was in its infancy. It is developing procedurally as well. And just by way of example, um, the upper tribunal will not order standard disclosures that we're familiar with in, in, in normal county court, high court cases. That's not what they do. Yeah. Uh, and one only appreciates that once you sort of appear yeah. and, and argue uh, over what are the appropriate directions. Hmm. Yeah. So... Moving on, what if I was to ask you, what do you think is a, an area of the code that's crying out for some clarity? So if you if you could get some clarity this year on one issue, what would it be, Oliver? Well, I, I mean, I think the the the, the, the sixty four thousand dollar or the sixty four dollar, depending who you ask, question is the question of obviously how valuation occurs. So that that is what 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 I think both the whole market is. Is looking for a decision on, but there are lots of other peripheral issues that that really do need to be sorted out. Um, I think that there are still uh, issues which which unfortunately haven't been resolved, um, 
properly by, by the law reforms because I think, for example, how the transitional provisions work is still quite difficult to, to, to work out in some circumstances. And of course, transitional provisions are um, a mogadon for the listeners, and I won't go into them because it's going to set everyone to sleep, but they are quite important. But thankfully, of decreasing importance as time goes on. But um, we're still waiting to see what happens. And the difficulty there, as well, of course, is that, that some of these transitional cases still have one foot in the county court yes. and one foot in the upper tribunal. And although we might know what the upper tribunal is doing, um, it's quite it's it's going to be as difficult as before to get clarity on what the county court's doing with these cases. Yes, I I think Oliver is right about the the big question that we would like to have resolved this year and any consideration but I think what goes hand in hand with that is what is it that you're valuing yeah. because uh, there is underlying this issue of consideration as to what exactly are you valuing is it just the code rights or is it a valuation not only of the code rights but everything else that yes. the operator seeks what's been referred to I think in, in, in some of the documents I've seen as code plus mm-hmm. rights yeah. Uh, so that is that is another issue, and yeah. I think probably not a fundamental issue now, but I think uh, it will come to be an issue because once agreements have been entered into and they uh, reach the end of their term, we'll be having anti-avoidance issues. Yes. Because you'll be having all these clauses about removal. Yes. Uh, and then the issue of avoidance will start arising. Yeah. The the point you were talking about about code plus that's quite an interesting thing this is sort of these areas you we've got um upgrading sharing but it's all the little bits around the edges that i think people are sort of trying to push at and go actually can i say that that is a code plus right therefore i value it outside of the code so i think you're absolutely mm. right there's there's a it's definitely going to have to be resolved at some point to allow site providers and operators to move forward because people need to know clarity about is there, is there a different valuation basis for that? Yes, and as long as the cases that are in the upper tribunal stand up and are not compromised, that issue is going to be determined right. early this year. Good, good to hear. So you both published a book last year on the new code. Um, great to have a textbook on it. Um, but the question everybody wants to know is how are you going to keep it updated given it's moving so fast? Well, well I mean, Wayne and I were tearing our hair out, really, because, um, you know, there are a lot of issues in there that we thought about that um, now there are cases on. And, 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 of course, as soon as you start fighting the cases, you begin to see further issues that just, you know, the, 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 the book writing process hasn't quite teased out in the same way. And it's the that old saying that fault law is, is tough law, you know, we, we, who, who would have known that there, was, that there was so much to say about paragraph 26? Mm. Um, who would have known that there were um, all of these other issues that, that have been thrown up just because of the inventiveness of the parties in the, um, uh, in the litigation and what they're trying to achieve? So I think there is, there is a need now for a second edition, maybe sooner than, than, than we had anticipated. Um, but yes, I, perhaps, Stanley, we ought to have rephrased what's the big issue, which is, when is the second edition yeah. going to be published? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we are trying to keep the book up to date. I have with me our newsletter yeah. Yeah. with respect to yeah. the book, 22 pages at least, yeah. Yeah. which will be on our On website. our website yes. shortly. So yeah. that right. will shortly be hitting yeah. For the, the airwaves. And and be advising all of our clients. So um, finally, I just wanted to get your thoughts um, 
about whether you know, a year in, and I know you've been exposed to a lot of a lot more arguments than most people have are aware that have been going on. Um, do you think that this code is the right platform for facilitating the government's um, stated aims of rolling out this new technology? As it's currently being interpreted by the upper tribunal, yes. Good. Um, yes, but I think uh, uh, what makes this area so interesting is that, that innovation is around the corner. Every, few, every, every so often there's a technological change or something happens and it, it, is, it is, I think, a, a piece of legislation that the government will have to keep under constant review, not just from the point of view of ensuring that it delivers the policy objectives the government has stated, which is, as you pointed out, Danny, are these, these desires to, to have, have quick rollouts, but also to deal with the innovative way in which we're all using technology. I mean, anyone who's been to a prop tech talk has their mind blown yeah. by what people are doing with buildings now, uh, and it's something that... that um, I think solicitors probably see more than barristers do because it, it's something their clients want and transactional lawyers see maybe. But it's, it's quite astonishing how the market has changed in the last couple of years. And, and so as, as Wayne discussed, I think, in his PLA talk on disruptors and so on, um, it was, it's, it's pretty astonishing what people are doing with their real estate now. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you both for your insights. It's great to hear from you. And um, yeah. Well, well, thank you for the invitation. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you.